Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Welcome to episode 10 for season 7, which in Octal is 1210, but let's not confuse you, episode 10, season 7. I am still Drew Freeman, here with my amazingly puggalicious co-host, Janie Clayton. Hello. This episode was recorded on Sunday, January 28th, 2018, and is sponsored by Jamf. Very special thank you to them for sponsoring the Ray Wendelick Podcast. On this episode, we welcome back Keith Moon. Keith was a contract developer, but now is deep in iOS code working with Google DeepMind. Hello. Keith is still not the drummer for The Who, but he will be talking about Swift Playgrounds and how we could possibly use iOS as a development platform. He's going to talk about my generation? <laughs> no. And in the second half of the show, Janie is going to be talking to us about animation. Keith, welcome back. It's good to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be here. Do you have a good holiday? I I did. I had a great I had a great Christmas. Thank you very much. Um, I I can't remember um, if when I was on the uh, podcast last, my my book was out, but I was I was a bit stressed out about finishing off my uh, book on Swift Four, which is which is out now um, under Pact Publishing. Yay. Yeah. So yeah, you both got your books out now. Books aren't stressful. What are you talking about? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's all right. We'll do an entire episode on what it's like to publish a tech book in for iOS. Indeed. I mean, when I started working on it, it was a book on Swift three. By the time it came out, it was a book on Swift four. <laughs> so that gives you some idea. All right. So so I was I wanted to talk today about um, Swift Playground. So Swift Playgrounds. Um, got a, a very big update uh, a few days ago. Uh, it went to um, version 2.0. Oh, is it funny? It has been released. Yes, it came out. I was on the, the beta, so I've been using it for a, a good few months now, but um, it was actually uh, officially released uh, four days ago as of the recording of this podcast. It uh, brings with it quite a, quite a few changes. It uses Swift 4, which I, I think was uh, being used previously, but um, one of the big uh, changes is uh, it's added support for playground book subscriptions. This allows third party developers to provide uh, Swift playground books uh, that the users uh, of playground books can subscribe to. There is a sort of app store like um, browsing interface that Apple provides. Um, so you can browse through um, Swift playground books provided by some, some, uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the content that uh, used to be uh, bundled within the playground sort of interface has now been broken out into these subscriptions, and they include things like uh, the um, the playground book for Sphero, uh, for a lot of other sort of Bluetooth um, and animation tools that you can play around with, and they've been broken out into their own section. But uh, crucially, you can actually enter your own URL uh, and point to your own feed of um, playground books and and get uh, playground books into the app that way. So it kind of um, it kind of gives you a, a way of side loading content into the Swift uh, playgrounds app, um, which is which is quite a new thing. Just as a, a recap on the um, of the playground books format, um, I don't know if you've most of the uh, content that Apple provides for the Swift playgrounds book is in this new uh, playgrounds book format. So it's like an executable it's executable Swift content organized into chapters and, and pages. And it primarily it's a, it's a way of uh, teaching programming uh, and, and Swift specifically in a really sort of interactive way. And you can embed 
you you provide uh, it provides a, uh, a way for users of the playground books to enter their own swift code and to follow along with instructions that you provide and it can be organized in uh, uh, pages and chapters and you can embed additional code and resources at the the page chapter and the book level and you can define uh, certain portions of the code as uh, non-editable so you can kind of give examples of what the code should look like and then provide a section for the users to enter their own code the the initial demonstration that, that most people come across in playgrounds is sort of the uh, the terrapin robot, the, the, the robot that's you start with move forward, move left, move right, turn, repeat. And um, it, it, it's interesting that it sort of gives you that option of commands that you can use. Yes. So you, you're basically brought through the process of standard program thinking and then using calls. Yes. Well, I, I know back when the, the Swift playgrounds were introduced, that that was very exciting for like you know somebody like me because like I was a, I was still already relatively new programmer and the idea that like I could put um, a bunch of Ray Wenderlich's tutorials into a playground on my iPad and I could like sit on an airplane or on a train or in traffic or whatever and just like be able to work through that on my iPad and I wouldn't need to have my computer I wouldn't have to have like another window with all of Ray's stuff and like like the idea that you, you could actually have like a, a thing that you, you could work through where it was all encapsulated into one package that was easy to access like that was very exciting when they were introduced a few years ago but like initially that was, wasn't really a thing and so I think a lot of people kind of lost interest in that because like a lot of, Apple will introduce something and then like three years later it'll be like amazing but when they introduce, first introduce it it's like okay <laughs> I do think that um, it's almost undersold because it's very focused on those learning to code you know those it's very sort of education and and possibly sort of kid focused it's people coming to programming for the first time people coming to Swift for the first time and helping them get up to speed but there's no reason that the the technology and the and the and the the book format needs to be just education or or just beginner programming focused. I mean, the, it could be used as a really interactive way of documenting an SDK for for the, um, a developer to use. Yeah. So say you know you, you want to start using uh, an SDK for a service like like Firebase or. Um, uh, DJI drones um, have a really sort of um, really good SDK, so perhaps you could want to demonstrate the the uh, the interface for that. Um, it would be a really great way of um, presenting that in an interactive manner. But that doesn't seem to be being used at the moment. But yeah, like I mean, even back when they were initially introduced in two thousand, was, was it fourteen? Like everything, I feel like everything was introduced in two thousand fourteen. That was like the big year for like everything. But like even back then, like uh, the person I, I worked for for at the time, uh, Brad Larson, he was able to Im- like he was able to embed like GPU image into uh, a playground, and he was able to go and do a lot of um, visualization of data and stuff like that. And just there's a lot of crazy stuff that he did that people were like, wow, I didn't know that you could do this with these playgrounds and like the playgrounds like I don't I don't feel like they're they've been sold in a way that's really good because they do so much stuff. But like whenever I start like a throwaway project, I never think to use a playground. I just it's like well I have to set up you know single view project and I have to do all the stuff with the view even though I'm not really using it. It's just like that's just my thought on what I'm supposed to do because I don't really have an idea about how I'm supposed to use playgrounds to prototype and do other stuff because it seems like there's the line between what a playground can do and what a project can do is is, is increasingly small. Yeah, there's there's so much you can do. Um, you know you. you you have all of UI kits you can you can play around with. You can prototype creating new views and custom controls and graphics, and it, it's great for all this stuff. I think it, I think it can really be. I mean, obviously you can't use it to build 
a app that you are going to ship to the app store end to end. But I think there's a, there's a vast amount you can do with making really useful, rich, interactive tools. I mean, maybe things like um, the ability to uh, have a sort of JSON explorer. So you, you can hit an endpoint, get back the JSON and see in a nice sort of visual way what that JSON looks like and expand it and, and, and use it to, as then onward jumps to other APIs. I can see really sort of useful tools like that being developed. I, I do uh, agree with you. I hadn't even realized that what I used to do when I was doing a lot of prototyping in Objective-C on the Mac was I would basically hijack the command line tool project. And that way I didn't have to do a full-blown app project, but if I needed to do a little tool that would either call a resource or do computation or get blah, that was there. And I realized that I've actually migrated to doing the same thing in Playgrounds now that I, I use that. And maybe it's the, the jump from Objective-C to Swift that made that sort of a better tool to do it. But it's nice that it, for prototyping is great. I want to get back to your comment about you can't use it to pull out a full-on app. And I think this also goes back to Playgrounds in Xcode, which isn't really the focus, that it's really hard to integrate a Playground with the rest of your project. Uh, even in workspaces. So calling on, say, a third-party library is still kind of a mess. So, you, I mean, you can do it on the Mac, and this is one instance where it's a, it's a shame that there is a difference between uh, the, the Mac playgrounds and, and iOS playgrounds, is that if you have a workspace and you have a bunch of modules um, and you have, if you when you have a, um, a playground within that workspace that playground can import modules from the same workspace uh, so that's a nice way of, of pulling in um, huge sort of blocks of, of swift code it, and you can't do that in in ios um, swift playgrounds for ios which is a real shame uh, you can embed other codes you can in the sources folder but it doesn't turn it into a module so it sort of doesn't give you that encapsulation in quite the same way but it but it is possible to, to do a bunch of stuff like that but one of the things that um, i've been thinking about recently is that and i feel as though this may well be something that apple's working on swift playgrounds was built as a a teaching tool for kids it was it was built as a way of um helping kids get up and running with programming and with swift many of those kids are likely they have an ipad that might be their only device that might be their only computing platform they don't necessarily have a, a, a laptop what's a computer oh don't 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 go there <laughs> exactly <laughs> it was exactly the point i was going to make that advert is brilliant and it's is so true that the kids you know is like what's a computer what are you talking about i've got my ipad this is what i use so if the kid if that kid is learning swift learning how to program on ios on um swift playgrounds what do they do then? Where do they take that knowledge? They've they've learned. Now, how do they do? How do they do? How do they create? There's not really a, a great... There's not really an answer to that. Like, Oh, come on. They've got college debt in the United States. They may as well just buy an iMac Pro. <laughs> but there's, de there's definitely... I, I feel as though there's a missing piece there that, that all of these kids that are learning on this iPad, which is their computing platform, then don't have anywhere to take that. that. Uh, and, and there are ways you can work there are workarounds you can do to sort of get a nearly foolish development environment 
on um, an iOS, but it, but it's very hacky at the moment. That, that, the cynical part of my brain is thinking that this is Apple's way of trying to see if they can get away from like producing the Macs because like they want everybody to do everything on the iPad. So like now if you can like do all of your programming on the iPad, and you have, and the, the Swift playgrounds get to the point where you can do all that stuff, and you can do all of your asset creation, you do all your stuff, then like I can see a scenario where they'd be like, well, let's just make these and not make the Mac anymore. And there was a time when when the iPhone and the iPad came out that the Mac was still the primary um, uh, revenue builder for, for Apple, but it's obvious now that Apple's revenue is coming out of the iOS environment, and maybe this does drive more, more revenue into iPad sales, because the big difference here is that Playgrounds is still an iPad-only issue. It's not iOS. It's not iPhone. It's nowhere else. That's well, but true. you're at the point right now where if you want to put an app out on the store, you still need to have a a Mac because mm-hmm. you need to be able to have X code, you need to be able to move, build it on the X on the computer yes. and do all the other stuff. But they got to the point where they basically had Xcode for the iPad that didn't have all of the legacy issues that everybody keeps complaining about. You didn't have to do all of the provisioning and deploy or whatever because you're you're just holding the device there. Like I can see a scenario in a couple of years where it would be powerful enough and they, they would have built the tools to the point where they'd be like, Hey, you know what, we don't really need to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reason you can't you can't move a lot of the the Xcode dross for project management for app management to either a web interface or to a web interface wrapped in an iOS interface so that you've got your membership and you've got all of that there. Of course. There's still a long way to go because there's a lot that you do in Xcode, especially when it comes to ID, the interface builder, that you're going to have to still find that new visual interaction paradigm that works on the iPad. The iPad's working really well for coding, especially if you have an external typewriter, either a Bluetooth, some Bluetooth keyboard typewriter, oh, that you have a Bluetooth keyboard for your iPad, so that gets the interface going faster. Yeah, I've I've tried a few different um, external um, uh, keyboards for for the iPad, um, and uh, I, I really liked the the Logitech. I used to have a, a twelve point nine inch iPad, and the Logitech Create keyboard for that. Um, is is very good. Um, the ones for the the ten inch and the nine inch, I, I find not quite as good as that old the the one for the twelve point nine inch. But it's really good. But the one I've just recently got is by um, a company called Bridge with a Y. It makes your iPad look like a laptop. Oh my god! I thought that. So so Keith holds up what I thought was was a a MacBook Pro, and in fact, what he's got is an iPad attached to a keyboard that looks very much like uh, like a MacBook Pro. It's so slick. It's weighted really nice. It feels like an iOS notebook. It's, it's, it's great. The only downside is that it uses Bluetooth instead of the smart connector. When you have a, um, a, a Bluetooth keyboard like this, um, yeah, it, it, um, your iOS device um, gets a lot closer to, to being a development environment. So there are a couple of, of uh, ways in which you can kind of go from, uh, okay, I can write a little bit of code in Swift Playgrounds to doing more proper development on, on an iPad. Um, so one of them is there's a really great app called Working Copy which is a Git client on as an iOS app. So it allows you to check out code from Git repositories, allows you to do 
a bunch of file management with them, you know, moving, renaming, that sort of stuff, um, even editing uh, of, of text-based files and then committing that uh, code back up to the, the Git repository. So you can use the working copy to get the files you need. Say, say you need to make like a quick edit to your your iOS project or maybe even your Swift server-side project. You can use working copy to get it. You, you can get the code into Swift Playgrounds to build the little extra component you need or do the little bit of integration you need, then take it back into working copy so that then you can commit your changes back up to your repository. And then if you have that tied in with like a cloud CI service, you could have that commit trigger a build in your continuous integration environment. That build runs all your tests and also, when it, if all the tests pass, then produces a build uh, that it can send out via um, uh, some sort of ad hoc service like a hockey app or um, Fabric. And then you receive uh, that notification back on your device. Does, does Quick Copy keep its own version of the file? Or can you use, say, the, the iCloud uh, files area or the Dropbox files area? No, you can't use that as a so, um, working copy is the, the, the Git client. Oh, working you, copy, thank you. Yeah, you can't use uh, files as the folder structure for that. It is has its own internal folder uh, file repository. Because although, you know, although Apple gives you files as supposedly the solution to, you know, folder file management on iOS. It's not really. It's, it's still its own. It's not an underlying file structure. It is its own app that, you know, has its own silo, just provides some file management. So the question I asked, if we have people from Apple listening in, which we often hope we do, what's on your wish list? Uh, well, I wish that play um, Playground Books could be tested on i on mac os so at the moment you've got to construct so the folder structure and the manifest files that you need to create for playground books is quite intricate and verbose which it is fine it's understandable but uh, one there's no way to test that you've you've done it right until you bring it onto ios so they don't work on on mac os which is a shame and there is no um, simple sort of verification tool to make sure you've you've got everything right. So, you know, like a, some sort of um, easy playground book creation um, tool would be amazing. Template. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Um, uh, having it work, having them work on Mac OS would also, I think, improve their usefulness because if you wanted to use them for documentation you might want that documentation beside your you as you you're working in xcode the ability to have uh embedded modules in uh playgrounds on ios and um i think in general just making swift playgrounds on ios and swift playgrounds on mac os have more parity keith thank you again for coming back to the show this season I, it was it, it was fantastic having you. We will probably drag you out in a future season. I also look forward to hearing what deep mind will will avail of the world. I look forward and I fear it entirely. But Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Coming up in the second half, Janie is going to be giving us a look into animation and some of the frameworks involved. But first, let's hear from our sponsor, Jamf. The RayWonderlick.com podcast will be right back. 
But first, a message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. For some people, IT is a task and not a career. Jamf Now can help you manage and secure your Apple devices at work. For example, it's pretty easy to keep track of a couple MacBooks and iPads. But as you grow and start to buy more tech, it gets harder to keep track of everyone's Apple devices. Jamf Now makes all this easy. Check real-time inventory, configure Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy applications, protect sensitive company data, and even lock or wipe a device from anywhere. Jamf now secures your devices so you can focus on your business instead. No IT experience needed. Ray Wenderlich listeners can start securing their business today by setting up the first three devices for free. Add more for just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash Ray. That's J-A-M-F dot com slash Ray. And a special thanks again to Jamf Now for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Janie, when it comes to graphics, animation, shaders, and math that would even scare Tammy, <laughs> I turn to you. We are going to take a look into animation today, and where do you want to start with that ride? Well, like I kind of want to build on a little bit about what we were talking about uh, earlier in the podcast about uh, different levels of abstraction. Because um, so when I started with um, iOS a couple of years ago, it was recently after Nick Lockwood had uh, gone and, and published his book on core animation. So I was like, oh yeah, animation's like really cool. I have to go learn core animation. I started looking through. I'm like, there's a lot of stuff in here. They're talking about masks. They're talking about gradients. They're talking about just all all of this stuff like this is like uh, this is like photoshop only like in code and it's not visual and you have to do all this stuff like by writing this is just this is this is insane like this is animation is hard and this is a thing that's really difficult to do and the thing is like you don't necessarily need to drop down to core animation uh, a couple of years ago uh, our own Marin Todorov published a book on doing iOS animations and one of the things that I commend him on with that book is that the first like seven chapters or so are talking about how core animation is kind of wrapped in UI kits. So like instead of having to go and do these these layer animations down in the de- depths of, you know, like the the, the layers of, of UI kit, you there there's some surface level stuff that's based on things that people generally are going to be doing very commonly. So there's like um like moving something from outside of the field of view into the field of view or f- moving it out again, like easing in, easing out, fading in, fading. Like like basically like um I went through the first I don't know, like seven chapters of this book and it covered everything that I thought I was going to learn like in the entire book like that went over like basically everything that I thought I might actually be using in an application and that was all in UI kit and you didn't need to drop down to core animation for that and I feel like we all kind of like have this mental mindset that we have to drop down to the absolute lowest level of abstraction just to do simple stuff and I also think that one reason that like so back when iOS 7 first came out like everybody complained about the flat layout design and talking about how they hated it because it didn't make any sense and they didn't know how to design for it because like they'd gotten kind of used to all of the realistic texturing and all of the the, the stuff that had preceded it. But I think the, if you go and you look at some of the videos that after iOS 7 came out, I think there was this expectation that animation was going to be a key component in design implementation for iOS after iOS 7. Because if you look at Apple's built-in applications, if you look at like the calendar application, when you go and you click on a a, a day, like it zooms in, and like it, if you try to back out, it zooms out. And the same thing with the photos, like animation is a very key component in the user interface design of the Photos app and the calendars 
app. And I think that there was the expectation from Apple that when iOS 7 came out, that yes, things would be flat, but that people would use animation to give the feel of depth and con- continuity and a bunch of other stuff. But people didn't really pick up on that and didn't really use was it. Was iOS 7 also when they started with the parallax effect so that you had... Yes. So, yes, so they, they flattened did. everything, but they flattened it in layers to give you that yes, three-dimensional yes. float. Yeah, and that is a thing that I feel was very much like overlooked by a lot of people. A lot of people wanted to complain about the iOS 7 aesthetic, but they missed a key aspect of that was that even though it looked flat, it had layers and there's the parallax and there was this idea that everything would be animated. And I don't think anybody picked up, like really took that. I, I think that the animation um, is, like you say, is quite easy to do in, in UIKit. Uh, part of the problem with iOS, the iOS 7 transitions was not so much the animation themselves, but was the animation controllers or the that you needed to do to transition between one view and another. And the animation itself was relatively straightforward, but the hierarchy of objects you kind of had to put together to make those animation transitions seemed far more complicated than than I'd have liked anyway. I think that was part of the problem. I, I'd agree that's part of the problem. I also, like, I've done a lot of contract work, and when I go and I work for contractors, I'm like, oh, there's all of this really cool transition stuff that you can do to add a really good user interface to things and, like, make things feel very fluid and intuitive, and most of the time I always hear, yeah, but our, you know, like, our clients slash our funders or whatever, they don't care about that crap. They just want something that works. So, like, it doesn't matter if the UI is more intuitive or that it flows better or it feels better. It's that people don't want to pay you to go in and do the stuff and adding all of this continuity and transition stuff, it's not valued. So we don't really, we're not really aware of it. We don't participate in it because it's not core data. It's not, you know, NSURL session. It's not pulling data in or putting it in table view or doing whatever, like the, the base level, like, you know, minimum viable product thing is because a lot of people don't really care that much about design. Now, now I'm going to flip it for a second and say that there, there are a few applications that I, I think may play in the animation bucket a little too deeply when the actual main form and function of the app uh, gets overshadowed by some, I mean, admittedly, absolutely beautiful transitions. But when it comes to, I just want to check what the balance on my account is, I really don't <laughs> need the accounts <laughs> flying apart and fluttering away as sprites. Well, like, I came from a design background. I went to school for vi- for graphic design and uh, video editing and audio engineering and so like my intuitive kind of feel for background is like I'm interested in how people interact with my application and how they process the information that I present to them but I found that there's not a lot of value in that like if I want to be a designer then I would take a, a pay cut because design is not seen as being like vitally important if you're an engineer and you're writing code then you're, you're actually contributing something useful but if you're just a designer well that's not that's not cool. And that, that's not necessarily, you know, design is essential because I, I've worked for companies where I'll get presented the designs for how this will look. And then I will look at the designer who handed it to me and say, well, how does this transition when a keyboard shows up? How does this change its dynamic on a smaller screen? And when I go from screen A to screen B, what moves where? And they look at me and sometimes blankly and go, whatever. Or... <laughs> In a worst yeah. case, from an iOS point of view, ask the Android guy what he's doing, which is, <laughs> in both directions, the wrong answer, because that, your visual paradigm yeah. is your platform. Yeah. You need, you need people, you need de- designers that 
understand how their designs are going to be implemented so that you need designers that at least have a slightly development mindset and you also i think need developers that have a slightly design mindset it's but you need a bit of both one thing i kind of appreciate is like i noticed like adobe recently came out with a tool that allows uh people to create mock-ups that have interactive xd yeah yeah and like so we we just started using this at my job and so like i get a an xd document where i can click on buttons and i can see exactly what it is that somebody expects to see and I'm like okay like I can I can I can grok this because it's something I can interact with and I can touch and I can understand the the flow of what this person expects mm-hmm. to have happen when somebody interacts with their application yeah I liked XD uh, with one of my companies because I told them you know if you want it to look a specific way I can go to XD I can pull your colors I I, I mean I can pull the hex code for your colors I can pull the number of byte if you uh, in spacing for pixels you know you give it to me, and I can even extract your graphics from the XD. Nice. It, it's it's a good tool, um, and it 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 was beta for for a very long time. So there was a lot of feedback going back and forth. I think Adobe really worked well on that one. I just I, I like I like to to work on things that feel nice, like they they re- behave the way that you feel like they should, like you interact with you the way that they should. They 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 feel like good and like the thing is like like it's a thing that you don't really consciously aware of it either like you either work with something and you don't notice it or if it's wrong then you do notice it it's kind of like good lighting in in video editing and, and theater and so forth yeah, on, you know drew's drew did theater so you you know like like if lighting is done well you don't notice it but if it's done badly then it's like geez everybody just looks like crap <laughs> <laughs> so all right so so that's the design look let's let's go back to the abstraction and, and the top-down view on doing the animation Best, from your point of view, Janie, best place to start with with animation is where? I would look at what you just get built in with the UI, like, layer animation. Again, like, uh, Marin wrote a really good uh, core animation book that's on raywonderlick.com. And if you just look at the first, like, seven chapters of that book, it gives you a really good idea about how to easily, like, come in and add a bunch of um, intuitive animations to your application. And just, like, adding a couple of things, it doesn't take very long. It really adds... To like you know, the life and the, the depth and the feel of your application, you can do some really powerful and creative stuff. Just adding a couple of you know, like having like things move into the field of view, moving them out, like trying to emulate some of the the, the the like the calendar functionality, being able to zoom in, zoom out, and do other stuff. Like it just it's really interesting to me about how you can bring your application to life just by adding some some movement to it. And like a lot of what I personally would be doing, especially for like client applications, is encapsulated in UI kit like all of this other stuff is is available it's you, you get a lot of stuff for not a lot of work to to just kind of go through and learn what you have available with UI kit but for me like like one one of the things that I got kind of so I one of my projects this year is that I want to publish a game using sprite kit and for me like I know with sprite kit like sprite kits like everything moves like that's that's the whole point of sprite kit and I started to get very confused when I went into sprite kit because I'm like okay like do I use core animation here like how how does this work there's no like SK animations class but like what they did was they wrapped all the core animation stuff in a class called um, SK actions so um, like there there were all of the, the different tutorials I went through like went over some of the actions but like after I went in and actually looked at the, the documentation and saw all of the different actions like okay there's there's uh, you know there's there's affine transforms there's rotations there's like you know there are all, all of these different things that I expect to see in animation that
that's that's where all of that stuff is located. So like SpriteKit has its own like abstraction layer around all of the animation stuff, but they don't call it animations, they call it actions. One of the other things that I liked about animation, um, session that I attended at RW DevCon last year was just simply doing all of your animation and transitions in IB with auto layout. Um, they did an entire thing where you basically would put a series of priorities in, and they replicated a major app's very bizarre transition just simply by changing the priority on one thing, and it cascade caused everything else to move into different places. So you didn't even have to worry about the animation or the time. Everything just moves with auto layout. To throw uh, another thing into the mix, you can use um, uh, UIKit uh, Dynamics is, is another, you know, big uh, uh, interesting way of, of doing animations that uh, is just sitting around uh, for people to use um, there's some, some apps that use it really well um, Swarm uh, is one they have um, when you check in they're sort of like little boxes that appear on your screen and then as you dismiss them they kind of collide and fall away under gravity right. it's really quite cool alright so I want to I take the idea of the iBook page turn because this is an interesting thing because it's first of all it's got the gesture recognizer it feels your finger and it does that map it's doing a page curl and I've, I've looked for this one this page curl does not exist in the standard APIs and what it's doing is it's page curling from the center and as it comes across you actually have a translucent mat of the page you were on visible through the page so you can actually see the writing on the back side of the page as you're curling this in 3d oh nice yeah um, yeah i i recommend yeah. everybody try to do this thing see how it looks but and and i also did some research and found out no 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 they've actually patented that one. Oh wow so if you go out and do it they actually could say no no sorry we own that transition <laughs> so but they can't give us everything <laughs> no 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 of course not but so I'm curious where do you start with with that because obviously as developers one of the things we do naturally is we see something in an app and go ooh I like that I wonder how they did it let me see so putting it to you from this animation point of view what do you how, how do you tackle this idea because it's obvious if we're going to be picking up a picture of a page and putting it onto the backing of a page that's rolling in a 3D then we're going to be going down and we're going to be going down low for shaders I'm guessing probably I mean like what I've done is I have I, I've purchased a lot of books that like were available fairly cheap cheap because they were they were old but the math is all still the same on like how to build different types of shaders like one of the things i'm really fixated on right now is i want to figure out how to realistically uh like you know, replicate water but these these the thing is like i've seen i've seen this in in a lot of different things so like like i know this is a solved problem so i know that's the, and i found several articles that are like you now like 20 years old describing the math about how to actually do that so like for me a, a big problem with trying to go and, and figure out how to do this stuff is that like i haven't done this math in like 20 years i don't remember it and back when i did was was learning it i didn't learn it in the context of using it for something like this so like i have to look at these giant scary equations and not have a zefa Biebelbrox like you know brain going dark because it's too scary to look at thing and like i have to actually kind of go in and look at it and go okay i see a lot of scary greek letters here uh but like i know that you know like v sub i means that this is the first you know this is the second element of a vector which is something i know from code so that is something that i 
can deal with. And I know this big giant, you know, like E thing that means sum, which means that I add a bunch of stuff together, which is a for loop from. <laughs> I basically I tried to translate it from like you know from from math to like English to programming because like I understand programming and like if I can go okay how do I make this into something that is programming then I can deal with it. But like there's huge amounts of like research materials from the last thirty years talking about how to do a lot of common stuff. It's just you have to be able to get past all of the academic creepy scary Greek letter math algorithm talk in order to be able to take that and apply it to what it is that you want to be doing. I guess what, what I'm asking is uh, from a top view, let's say I have my page. I guess I can use my view to convert that to a picture and then send that picture down as sort of the... Um, texture. Your texture. So the picture becomes your texture. Well, that depends on how you want to do this, because you could do this as either a vertex or a fragment shader. Vertex shaders deal with geometry. So if you wanted to treat the page like it was an actual like physical object, like a plane, you could translate and say, like, okay, you've got this this you know like, like plane that's made up of a, a mesh of different polygons. And you can say, like, if I grab this corner one and I translate this corner from here over to here, how does that impact every other polygon inside of this mesh? Mm -hmm. And then you could texture map the the page onto the top half of that, and then the back page onto the onto the back half of that. Shader program, like if you're doing shaders for applications in the rendering pipeline, like and you're doing graphics, you have to have two different shaders. You have to have a vertex shader and a fragment shader. So a vertex shader deals with geometry and moving things in physical space, and then the fragment shader just deals with what it is that actually gets rendered on the screen. Screen. So, like, if you're you're halfway through your page turn, what the fragment shader does is it calculates the lighting to see like what parts of the page show up as being bright, which parts show up as being dark, how skewed the the image looks when it's mapped to a certain part of geometry. But then the vertex shader is responsible for all of the the actual like translation of movement between the page as it's like the bending and the stretch, the bending and the stretch. Yeah. So, like, like, but you need you need both of those Got it. Um, to exist in order to actually have a full rendering pipeline. You can't just say, I'm just going to write a fragment shader. It's like, well, you still need a vertex shader because they're all, they're all part of the same pipeline. But like all, all of the stuff that we're talking about, like these are things that you you need to know if you want to do something that is very specialized. But for like the vast majority of developers, they don't need to know all of this stuff. So it's like it's good to know that there are these higher level abstractions of taking common things, like you know, like like bringing an element into a scene and having like a curve in or a curve out view animation that people can use with like two lines of code that they can learn in like ten minutes in order to generate some common like but like useful animations without having to drop down to the, you know the metal layer and figuring out all of these these matrix translations and all this other garbage. I have to admit when I played with Sprite Kit for the first time I just had this crazy idea that I was going to move some clouds on the screen and I was blown away by how easy it was to use. I I expected it was going to be difficult. My background being really old guy as we talked about last <laughs> last show with Mark is at a time where animation went you didn't just draw it, but you had to then undraw it before you drew the next one. Now we have to deal with that. So it's, it's Sprite Kit just blew my mind that I could just simply say, here's your movement, here's your direction, go forth and do. The Sprite Kit was confusing for me because I expected Sprite Kit to be a Cocoa framework, so I expected to have like the model view controller, I expected yeah. like to have like, like I expected it to be like that and then like when I had this like update loop and this make move and, and there were all of these other like things, like it was a completely different way of thinking about stuff and like for me, like, like it was very difficult to wrap my head around Sprite Kit until I fundamentally realized by reading other books about game design, like, oh, wait, this 
this is a completely different way of thinking about how you work with a program. After I realized that this was not Coco and this was game development, then it was like, okay, now now I can learn this because I keep trying to fit this, you know, like square peg in this round hole and it doesn't fit there. Which is really weird because <laughs> I think one of the reasons I took to Sprite Kid is that it reminded me of the old pre-OS 10 Max event loop. <laughs> so I was just like, wait, I remember how to do this. It just came naturally. Jenny, there's a lot of really good stuff about UI Kit, and I think a lot of people tend to miss out on this, and I hope that a lot of developers will be able to take another look at UI Kit and get some better ideas of things that they can do to enhance their applications. Yay! Keith, again, thank you for being here for our second time and and giving us a lot of great information on Playgrounds 2. No problem. We'll look forward to talking to you guys again. Again, we also want to thank Jamf for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Next time, about two weeks, we have another show coming up. And that will be lots of fun. But until then, that wraps things up for this episode of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. For my wonderful co-host, Janie, and also thanks to Keith Moon, we send it back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time. <laughs>